another bank just shut down. Regulators today abruptly closed Signature Bank. Kinds of uncertainty surrounding the banking sector tonight. Markets tumbled in North America and Europe, dragged down by banking stocks and alarm about Credit Suisse. The two biggest geopolitical rivals of the U.S. want to counterbalance the dominance of the dollar worldwide, and Russia is increasingly embracing the yuan. I am an ardent defender and a lifelong defender of civil liberties. And Bitcoin is both an exercise and a guarantee of those freedoms. All right, so welcome everybody. I'm joined here by my man, Eric Yakes. How are you, Eric? I'm pretty good, man. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's my pleasure, man. I know, I know we're going to have a hell of a conversation, so I'm really excited. Uh, before we really kind of jump into it, just a couple of pieces of business. Um, you know, if you're watching on YouTube or Rumble, give us a like, subscribe to the channel. If you're listening through Spotify, whatever platform you use, please, uh, you know, leave some comments if you can. Uh, follow. Uh, this This is brand new for me, so we're into episode, I think this is recording number 11, so we're still really early on trying to develop a following. So anything you guys can do to support me, uh, is going to be really, really helpful. Um, this is a value for value podcast. So if you feel like this episode uh, provides value for you, uh, you, you feel like dropping some sats, you, you're more than welcome to do that. And uh, easiest way is through the fountain app. All right. So Eric is the author of an amazing book called The Seventh Property, Bitcoin and the Monetary Revolution. And it's funny, if you go to Amazon and I mean, this is what I do. I always look at reviews of whatever it is. Your book, man, gets... I think it's like 4.8 out of five, just sort of like consistently. So clearly what you're doing works. So like, good on you. Um, there's going to be a lot of people out there that um, might not know you or might not know you well. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe even how you got into Bitcoin? Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, do you want the, you want the short or you want the long answer? Um, Cause I can definitely ramble about that story. You mean how you got into Bitcoin? Yeah. Um, you know what? Let's just run with it. Let's see what happens. All right, cool. Um, yeah, so w with Bitcoin, it was something that, you know, I had a finance background. I studied it in college, finance and econ, and I, you know, wanted to work in uh, kind of like a competitive area of finance the entire time. Um, I started off my career in corporate restructuring where we would deal with companies that were going through like a serious issue or about to go into bankruptcy. Um and I, I started off in that area because I wanted to cut my teeth on dealing in business situations that are the most challenging uh, from a financial perspective, as well as like operational. And then the, that led me to working in private equity, where we worked in an area where we'd buy out companies and, and um, we would effectively like to turn them around, specifically companies that were divisions of larger enterprises. So we'd have to like stand the company up to typically like an underperforming division that they want to get rid of. Um, and like all that experience, I had a lot of exposure to everything that was wrong in the economy and everything that wasn't working and all of these zombie companies that probably shouldn't still be alive, that were still being kept alive because credit was just so cheap and they could keep rolling their debt over. And, I, you know, economics was always a big hobby of mine. I, you know, studied in college. That's the Keynesian education. I had always, I was lucky enough to have been led to Milton Friedman when I was 18. And I was reading about, you know, the monetarists and the Austrians on the side throughout that education as well, always keeping like a balanced perspective of what was going on. And, um, you know, because of that, I was always familiar with, you know, all the issues with central banking and how this is a huge problem. And the big question on my mind before I discovered Bitcoin was like, you know, 
how does this end and uh what's eventually going to happen there's always like you know the fear-mongering type aspects of it as well as the people who are you know permables about it as well and um and before Bitcoin, I really didn't know what like the escape valve was ever really going to be. I never really thought like going reverting to a gold standard or something on a new fiat system at some point is really like a, a tangible solution. It's more just like a perpetuation of the same system. Um, and it was funny because even with that whole perspective I always had, I first discovered Bitcoin when I was buying fake IDs with it in college. And um, I didn't really think that much about it at all. And uh, it was in a class like that year, I think one of my, my favorite economics professor uh, asked us to like all of the class, like write a response to a question about, you know, what's, what's the value proposition of Bitcoin. And, you know, with the education that I kind of had received up until that point, um, one, number one, I didn't know enough about it. I thought it was somewhat of an esoteric technology, but I pretty much like concluded that it was a speculative investment with no fundamental value. And, um, and I thought about that pretty much from like 2015, 2014 into 2016. And it was in 2016 when I was working, I had a close colleague who kind of kept harping on it with me and was just like, hey man, um, this is a really cool tech, but he didn't have a finance background as much. And um, he didn't know how to explain it to me in those terms. Uh, and frankly, I don't think a lot of people knew how to explain it to this day. I feel like we don't totally know how to explain it. I try to make that my job is to explain it because once I realized that it was an alternative to central banking, that's when I was like, oh shit, this is a, this is a really big deal. We're talking about, um, we're talking about money, which is the largest market in the world and something that's going to fundamentally change how society operates. This is the solution to all the problems that I see in the world. And like, once that kind of clicked for me, that's when I, you know, went down the rabbit hole and, um, and I was just working the entire time. And that eventually kind of got me to a point where I was just like, I realized I was just like, what am I doing? Not becoming a part of all of this. And, uh, and I also was pretty disillusioned with a lot of, you know, the work I was doing in like the, you know, fiat type system. It's not to write it off. There's, there's plenty of valuable work. If, like, you know, I think like Bitcoiners like to hate on wall street a lot. And like, there's a lot of really bright guys with good intentions that are, you know, um, solving complex problems. There's also a lot of pieces of shit too. So, Oh, sorry. Can I curse on this? Yeah, go for it, dude. Okay, cool. Um, and, uh, so like, you know, it's, it's just like anything else in the world, uh, but there's definitely a lot of bad people in it too. But nonetheless, like, um, it wasn't like I, I, I was totally like against everything. It was just like, I didn't see any passion in the work I was doing on that side of the industry. Like we were squeezing efficiency out of companies, nothing, uh, it, it's valuable in the economy. Uh, I didn't, I didn't feel like I was like solving any major problem in the world. And then like, you know, Bitcoin, I was like, this is the biggest problem in the world. Why am I not working on solving it and supporting the movement of people that are? Um, so I, I, you know, I kind of got to a point where I was like, okay, let's jump into this industry. And, um, and that's when I started writing the book. Um, I just wanted to get as deep as I could. Um, and really like my goal with all of it was at that point in time, when I started writing it, it was, uh, you know, around like 2020. Um, and then I published the book and self-published in 2021. Um, and around that time, like, I mean, really, I think the only resource for people, that were like financially minded or economically minded was the Bitcoin standard. And while the Bitcoin standard is valuable, I think like from the world that I came from of like, you know, wall street type people, I didn't think that that really makes a very strong investment case. I think it's valuable in certain ways, but I think that it, it was missing a lot of pieces that needed to be expressed. Um, and we, you know, I was like, okay, the history of money is important. Um, but 
we don't need to make that in the entire book. We can pretty much summarize like the valuable aspects of that in a few chapters. And then we need to understand like, how does the actual banking system work and the plumbing of that work um, so that we can really understand what our monetary systems like today. Um, so that was like one big piece that I set out to dig into and to try to do that in a measured way. Um, I didn't want to uh, sound like, you know, I, I wanted to be very measured in the same way that an investor's mindset is measured about risk and reward and not really consider it as like, you know, I didn't want to position it as like, here's this revolution and, you know, we're all advocates of this. And like, while I do feel that way, I do know how to communicate best with the world that I came from. And it's definitely not from that angle. Um, so that, that was another aspect of it. And then I just wanted something that was a bit more technical in certain areas. I feel like for, for the investment, um, for, for people that are kind of coming from like the private equity hedge fund type world, um, there's you don't need to know everything about Bitcoin, but there's a handful of aspects about Bitcoin that you really need to know pretty well. And a lot of that comes down to, you know, how consensus is achieved and what the incentives of the network ultimately are. So I really dug into those in a more in a more in-depth manner than I think most resources were. The, the alternative of that was like, go read Mastering Bitcoin or, you know, Programming Bitcoin by Jamie Song and like, Nobody really has the time to do a lot of that um, within the financial world. So I wanted to summarize some of the more salient aspects of the technical areas that I thought were most relevant too. And um, and yeah, and then I just did that and I put it out there. And uh, yeah, the book ended up doing pretty well. I'll, I'll stop right. I guess I'll stop there. All right, cool, man. Um, one thing you said towards the end there was uh, in relation to like what venture capitalists need to know. And it sort of right away, my mind went right to like FTX and sort of like the lack that sort of the lack thereof as far as the knowledge goes um because like how much due diligence actually went on that's what keeps boggling my mind i'm like how much should they actually learn about any of the the technologies that all of ftx was sort of attached to um i mean that that's a completely different rabbit hole altogether but yeah i, I just had to put that out there um yeah all right, man. Um, you know what? Before we move on, I, I just want to do one quick thing because I keep forgetting. Um, you know, I mentioned how we're on Fountain. And the cool thing about Fountain, if, you, if you've never used it before, is it allows you to to boost. So you zap a few extra stats to give somebody a chance to uh, essentially put out a comment, a question that we read out loud. So uh, there's one guy here. He's, I would say he's kind of like my first number one fan. So his name is uh, Petar, or it may even be Peter. I apologize for butchering your name. Um, but going back to a couple episodes ago, uh, I had uh, Jesse Berger on the show. And uh, so he wrote, great interview. I'll have to check out this guy's book, uh, the book being Magic Internet Money. Uh, I think what Bitcoiners overestimate is people's willingness for change. In my experience, most people don't change because they don't want to. They change because they have to. The point you guys made of, I have $1,000, sure, but out of what denominator? Is a brilliant one which will be completely lost on people unfortunately and uh I, I agree completely it's sort of one of those pieces like that's why we always say like one bitcoin equals one bitcoin um and we know every time the money supply gets expanded you lose that purchasing power so just want to put that out there so yeah if you ever want to you know boost some sats i will gladly read your comments out loud to me it's a great way to kind of like build this community and uh, I, I love that sort of participation piece all right so my first question is easily the longest one for you. Um, and we can, perhaps we, we might just focus on this for the rest of the time. I don't know. But like, mm -hmm. in your opinion, like, why is Bitcoin a superior form of money? <laughs> um, yeah, there, there's quite a bit. So I'll, uh, 
I guess the best place to start, I think, with answering a lot of this question is to, I, I'll, I'll, I'll start off with like a high level summary, and then I'll dig into a kind of an explanation around all of it. So, there, it, when you think about different technologies, they often, you know, have trade offs, and um, you might have uh, like a, you know, a car is optimized for one purpose of transportation, while a bus is optimized for another purpose of transportation. Um, and in innovation is when we find something that can do both um, in a certain form. And uh, and I think that like that's kind of the story of money is that we started off with money that was optimized for one form. Over time, it became optimized for another form and then it was ultimately co-opted. So, I mean, when we go back and we look at primitive forms of money in antiquity, and this is what a lot of like Safe Dean writes about, is a, a lot of these primitive forms of money you know, they, they were naturally chosen in private markets because they had fundamental properties that made them valuable for the purpose of exchange. And, and that's kind of like a distinction is like these often were goods that were used for some form of consumption. Um, these were things that, you know, people were using in different ways that they liked. Um, but, um, but ultimately, when uh, there's there's two different forms of like value that you can really break a good into, money is something that's a separate form of value from consumption. It's just value for transaction, and um, and the way that I like to think about that is that there is um, you you push your thinking to extremes, and it makes the answer pretty obvious. So, like in a barter economy, if we assume there is no money and it doesn't exist, then you can think about our economy today. It would be impossible to run. It would be impossible for people to specialize and work as efficiently as they do in a barter economy because it would take far too much time and energy for people to try to match buyers with sellers. So, like all that time and energy that we save from having money and not in is it's time and energy that we get to spend, you know, building technologies like working on research for a new superconductor technology and all these other uh, brilliant ideas that have emerged over time. It all comes through the process of specialization. So like money is like an implicit, like transaction costs are an implicit cost that exists that we've slowly decreased over time. And, um, and there were certain primitive forms of money that we chose that were best at reducing those costs of transaction. And that's why they nat naturally emerged in markets and people naturally chose them. And then we decided to get more efficient with how that worked over time. And, um, you know, as as we started to move from, you know, things like beads and flints and furs and axes and different things that were primitive monies, and we moved into like the precious metal era, that was like a big leap in efficiency where we found things that were much more scarce, um, like gold and silver. And, and that was good. It was storing value much better. Um, and people were still able to trade in like local economies like that. But as our form of organization expanded and like people develop more, you know, when we think about developments into systems such as like the, uh, you know, once we had the printing press and once we had, uh, you know, from that double entry bookkeeping and then eventually we had the telegraph, you know, we had these very wide expansive economies of communication between people. And that's when like we were like, OK, well, if I'm trying to trade with somebody very far across Europe with the telegraph, I can do that with paper. So it's much better in terms of like the actual transaction cost. It's much cheaper for me to do with paper as opposed to getting a bunch of gold bars and traveling across Europe to go, you know, trade with somebody else. And um, so a big reason why we started using paper money backed by gold was because paper was just much more efficient for transaction. It had very strong properties that enabled it to be good for that. Uh, what it lacked is that it wasn't scarce, which is why we had to back it with something that was. 
Um, and I think that that's like a key idea that emerged is, you know, this whole idea of money needs to be backed by something pretty much up until the point of paper money, where we started creating receipts on top of, you know, good money, like gold and silver, um, you know, money throughout history was always something that wasn't backed by anything. It was always something that had fundamental properties. So that was the idea is that we basically got to a point of optimizing between, you know, ultimately two forms of money. We're like, okay, well, we'll, we'll take the properties of gold. And as long as we keep the supply of paper in line with the, the supply of gold, uh, then we can still have that property of scarcity. And we can have all the other good properties like portability and divisibility and all these things that allowed us to conduct trade more efficiently. So we that, that was an innovation. It was a good thing. Um, I think the problem that societies fell into throughout time is when that developed banking systems uh, where people would store their gold and they would issue paper on top of it, um, that those were centralized institutions. Um, the, that, that's when intermediaries really started to become a strong part of money. So there's kind of like you know, three primary ways in which intermediaries get involved in money. It's how we store money, um, how we... Uh, and verify that money um, and ultimately like how we transact that money. So when we had the banking institutions, um, we, we, we started to trust intermediaries for the purpose of storage. And, um, and what we realized is that governments very quickly co-opted those types of institutions. Um, and when, when we trust in these centralized intermediaries for different forms, we're ultimately putting this entire system at risk of being controlled by some sort of, you know, authority or somebody that uses violence to conduct their, you know, activity in society. And um, so that was a problem with that system. And then these systems got co-opted over time. These uh, culminated naturally, like central banks were kind of a natural function that emerged privately through like centralized clearinghouses. Um, and those were something that ultimately got co-opted in the central banking function by governments. So it was um, once we got to that point is when we started the the table was set for like fiat money. And then that has emerged time and time again throughout history where governments attempted to create fiat money. And it was something that was ultimately very often rejected by markets. And it would there's a pattern throughout history where like when fiat money was created and it wasn't backed by anything that resulted in these boom and bust cycles and like hyperinflationary type scenarios and, you know, moving over to new regimes and moving over to new types of money. Um, it was just a pattern the governments would always fall into. The U S has fallen into that now. And, um, you know, we stand here today on, uh, a global system of fiat, which has actually never occurred in history, um, with debt in the highest proportions that's ever existed in history. Um, and, it, the the system has just never been uh we've never had a global system of fiat and that's something that's very scary and then along comes bitcoin at this point in time and um and the primary innovation of bitcoin i see is that we found a way to have all of the benefits of the efficiencies for transacting with native to this technology and its surrounding ecosystem um without the costs of centralization that come from the system being at risk of political capture. So that is a true innovation. And like in my book, I refer to that as like, we have immutable characteristics within Bitcoin now. And um, and whether it's Bitcoin, whether it's some new type of money that emerges in the future that for whatever new innovation that we can't even anticipate yet occurs, um, we should be thinking about money. We should be thinking about money in terms of its properties. And we should be thinking about immutability as a fundamental property that should exist within any form of money going forward. Um, 
so that was one of the big things that I wrote about in the book. And like, I think that the, so to like summarize all that again, it's like, we started off in antiquity with, um, you know, these primitive forms of money, money was largely decentralized, right? People were creating money themselves. They were storing money themselves and they were verifying it amongst one another themselves. You can think about societies that used like seashells, for example, for money. They go find seashells, they'd carve them into beads. They'd wear it as necklaces when they traded with each other. Like, is that a real bead? Is that a fake bead? They'd be verifying. Um, and uh, so it had this very like decentralized nature to it. And then over time, we centralized it to gain efficiencies in payments um, for very logical reasons. And that put the system at risk of political control. Now we've created a system that still can possess all those efficiencies of decentralization and it's no longer at risk of, or not no longer at risk, but um, it's significantly deterred the risk of any form of political control. And um, and I think that that's kind of what makes it superior to anything else we've ever seen. That's awesome, man. I mean, I was just like taking all that in. <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I'm very familiar with the history of money in, in part from having read Safe's book. Um, mm -hmm. you know, th this show, I, I very carefully decided on a title and as you know, it's Bitcoin versus the banks and it's that, that centralization piece. That's so key. Um, I actually had a conversation with somebody, I believe it was yesterday, maybe been a couple of days ago over Twitter. Um, you know, I was, uh, looking, looking to get some retweets. And I said, you know what, for the first 20 people, I'll send you a thousand sats if you can just retweet this thing for me. And uh, sure enough, I did with one guy from Argentina. We got into this conversation where he was saying like, here, you know, I, I'm pleading people like buy Bitcoin, stop, stop trying to get anything else. And of course, what other people are uh, putting their money, like storing their wealth into is the US dollar. What I found fascinating about that though, was he was telling me how like here, we're not really allowed to actually purchase the dollar. If you, if you do so, you're actually doing it on the black market. So again, it's coming down to these central institutions that are sort of making up the rules as they go along. And rather than favoring like the actual constituency, it favors a various sort of small uh, oligarchy. Oh, sorry, olig yep. oligarchy. Struggle with that word. Um, that, okay, awesome. I mean, that, that explains it to me why it's superior. I think for some people, they still can't wrap their heads around it because they've, they've only lived under this system, right? They've never experienced life, you know, exchanging commodities, as you said, or at least a system where it's backed by a commodity. So yeah, we've kind of lived in this weird sort of like long, but transitory period where all we're used to is just exchanging these paper notes. And, uh, I mean, I always joke with people that I know aren't Bitcoiners and just say like, why are you giving me this like paper for whatever I'm getting? Like it's, it's nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. Why do you think that like so few people have come to this con conclusion that you have and that I have that Bitcoin is in fact like the ultimate form of money? Because it's incredibly novel. And, uh, and I also think that it's the, one of the hardest things I think is people, people have a very easy time understanding an explicit cost versus an implicit cost. And, and that's kind of like the game that governments play is they find ways to push implicit costs on people because people don't notice it as easily. It's indirect. Um, and I feel like, like Bitcoin solving a problem that's like implicit in nature. When I was talking about like, what's the purpose of money? It's to like reduce this implicit cost of transaction. Um, and, um, you know, if we lived in a perfect utopia, 
there would be zero cost of transaction. I mean, even with Bitcoin and the system emerging around it today, we're still going to have transaction costs. It's going to require time and energy to expend effort to transact. And, uh, you know, Perfect Utopia removes that completely. So it's like, that, that that's something that I think makes it harder for people to understand, particularly uh, in the technologies, like, you know, we're, we developed economies are where, you know, high technologies like Bitcoin are, have emerged. Um, and where a lot of the the thinking and the demographics have, you know, found these, you know, uh, the value in it based on very intellectual arguments. So it's uh, it, it's probably based quite a bit around that too. Is just like just simply expending the effort to spread the word. But I think that um, most people today don't realize, you know, the cost of you know fiat money because it's an implicit cost through inflation to them and it's something that you know all of us who are advocates have to work on and say like no this is uh all we're doing is updating a ledger and they're taking money from you and it's going to somebody else and this is just a wealth redistribution so um and that's hard that's you know it requires quite a bit of understanding to really get to that point um and it's just like any other major movement that's occurred in any other form of like you know very strong earth-shattering form of technology it takes people decades to understand these things and um and we're chugging away and you know the every single argument is in our favor and i feel very confident that all we need is time in order for that to disperse but more and more advocates and the i, I guess the other only other counter argument to that too is um there's a lot of people who today don't understand the internet and spend most of their lives on it. Um, and there's definitely like, I feel like in terms of how Bitcoin gets adopted in the long term, there's going to be a lot of people who never care to understand its purpose or why. There, it, we need to get the system to a point where its utility is so apparent and so high and so easy for people to utilize, which we're not there yet. Um, but once we get there, I think there's going to be the majority of people are going to enter the system because it does something valuable for them that's very apparent and tangible in the near term. And once once we get to that point, that's like kind of like the suddenly moment where the expansion happens a lot more rapidly, I think. What do you think might be the next catalyst? Like, what is it going to take? Is there going to be sort of like this like big aha moment where all of a sudden like people clue in or is it just going to be this sort of slow, gradual push towards it especially coming from younger people that are just you know used to digital technology yeah. and would rather you know pay for something on their phone as opposed to you know using bank notes or or their you know, mastercard yeah there's there's i i could talk about this for a while i think that there's there's a lot of different things that i think could potentially emerge as like really strong catalysts um i think from a more um topical perspective i i would probably focus on so i guess like or a better way of putting it before i say that is i think that there's there's kind of um there's a societal shift and the global shift that's occurring in terms of trust in institutions, in terms of trust of governments, and in terms of a lot of like geopolitical considerations that's happening. I think that's going to be one primary catalyst, and that's a pretty complex thing to delve into. But generally speaking, um, I think that general faith in fiat currencies has been pushed to a limit, and we're going to get to a point to, you know, put Bitcoin aside. If Bitcoin wasn't here today, people are going to be trusting in real assets like commodities um, and things that you know, they can eat and live in. Um, so I think that that's one trend that'll be very large that's slowly been building up over time and we're kind of getting an inflection point with it. 
Um, for the more like retail type perspective, I think that there's, uh, and I'm, I'm not totally certain of this yet, but one thing that I am starting to come around to, and I was initially kind of a strong skeptic of, but the more I've weighed the cost benefit, I've kind of gotten to the point where I'm like, okay, this actually might make sense. I, I think that the properties of being able to leverage the ecosystem on top of Bitcoin, of effectively being able to create highly divisible transactions that are extremely low in cost, um, that's going to pay. That's going to pair well with like AI, and I don't really even want to call it AI. Just like like large language models. Um, I like that. That's going to be very valuable. I think it's going to be in for a rude awakening, and things are kind of overvalued right now. And there's probably going to be a lot of liability and you know legal issues that start to emerge out of all this. And that side of the industry is probably going to get knocked down pretty hard in a year or so. Um, but nonetheless, we're seeing a more rapid adoption curve in AI than like any other technology we've measured throughout history. Um, so it, it, the benefits are pretty tangible. Um, and while I'm not an expert on that. There people who are building large language models and automating transactions between these, which are going to be uh, communicating quite a bit of value in transactions from AI to AI. Um, I think like that makes a lot of sense for like micro payments from Lightning Network or potentially eCash on Fediments. Um, and I haven't totally flushed this out, but I think that like on the near term horizon, that could be a major catalyst that really gets things moving pretty quickly. Um, and, uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to learn a little bit more about that and see how certain things develop around it. Very cool. Um, yeah, I know a lot of people have been talking about AI, um, you know, what currency makes more sense machines, you know, paying one another than one that functions 24, seven, 365, uh, that's completely decentralized. Like Bitcoin is just like the sort of the only answer that anybody can actually turn to. Um, I had a conversation actually with uh, Bobby Shell from Voltage, and I asked him actually a very similar question. And he he was actually very much on board with um, not the AI piece so much, but um, the the content creators. That's what he was sort of alluding to. How, yep. um, you know, like I talked about value for value, right, for my own mm -hmm. show. So yeah, just being able to to zap somebody if like five sats, hundred sats, whatever it is for, for for whatever content they like. I think that yeah that whole sort of movement is going to be incredibly disruptive and like what better technology to leverage for that than Bitcoin and the Lightning Network. So, yep. Um, okay. We're going to pivot the conversation a little bit here. Another kind of big open question. Um, can you explain what fractional reserve banking is? Because I think the majority of people have no idea what it is, nor do they know that it even exists. Yeah. And honestly, this is like, this is kind of a complicated question. Uh, if I were to get to like the lowest level of detail, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it high level. We can kind of go from there, but I, you know, fractional reserve banking is just, um, if you imagine an economy that doesn't have any intermediaries, imagine that we don't put our money into banks, like put Bitcoin aside, let's just assume we all just have cash. Um, and we're all, you know, just paying each other in cash everywhere around the world. If you wanted to get a loan, what would you do? You would go to like your neighbor or your family or one of your buddies or whoever it is. And you'd say, hey, man, can I borrow some money? I'll pay you back in this amount later. Um, and what that's one of the primary functions of 
allocation is to provide credit to people because you know some people need money at certain points in time uh to pursue things that they don't have so they you know bring in whether it's investors through ownership in their company or whether it's investors to give them loans loans are preferable because you're not giving up ownership and control um so when we have uh so we could have the economy run like that theoretically and uh, there'd be a bunch of people who are really bad at making loans because making a bet on a person and an investment is a really complicated process. So we have intermediaries like banks that fulfill that function and they accept it. Um, and what they realized is that through these types of systems, and it, it existed this way pretty much since the very beginning, um, if you're making, if the bank itself is trusted for the note that it issues on top of its deposits, so if it accepts a bunch of money from everybody and then it issues its own notes that people accept as money, if a bank can get that accepted as money, then um, they can expand the money beyond how much they actually have in reserves to pay back to their depositors. So the fractional reserve system is a little bit more than just that, but for 90% of it is the fact that banks issue loans of uh, effectively meaning they issue money that is greater than the amount of reserves that they hold. And what does that do? It, it, it expands the money supply. So like, that's how our banking system works today is most of the money is created by banks and not really by the federal reserve printing money. Um, or uh, you know the U.S. Treasury when it's issuing Treasury bonds, um, so it's um, that process expands the money pretty significantly, and that process is very trust based because it's based on probabilities and assumptions that you know not a lot of people are going to come try to pull their money out of the bank. And then you know we've had a lot of bank runs throughout history when those assumptions are wrong, and a lot of people try to come pull their money out of a bank. So, is fractional reserve an inherently bad thing? I, I I think so. I just think that um, credit is a good thing. And today, those two things are, you know, very closely tied. The question is, is it possible to issue credit not beyond the amount of reserves that you have? And it certainly is. The problem is, is that that's never happened in history. We've never had a systemic form of non-fractional, of a full reserve system ever emerge. We've had certain major institutions that have been relegated to a full reserve type system. Um, and, you know, that's one of the arguments around like free banking theory is that private markets ultimately opt towards fractional reserve. And there's a lot of theoretical arguments on like why, why that is. Um, but um I the what a lot of the research I do now, um, and I have some on my blog and my website, um, and there's a paper that I'm working on now that's going to be coming out in a few months that's going to be a lot more practical. The blog and my website goes pretty deep into free banking theory, and it's a question of if we have these types of systems that are custodial within Bitcoin, will we see fractional reserve emerge on it at some point? And uh, and I dig deep into the historical theory around that, as well as what you know, kind of I expect might emerge in the future. And then this new paper I'm working on is getting a lot more practical around how I think the actual financial system will look on Bitcoin, and from that we can deduce, um, you know, what. Uh, what type of system might ultimately emerge. And pretty much where I'm getting to is I think that this new system is ultimately going to be too competitive and too informationally transparent that it's going to be practically impossible to run a fractional reserve institution without a bank run occurring. Um, and, and that could be a really, really cool innovation that emerges from the system on top of Bitcoin that we've never seen before from just the cryptographic technologies that we have today. Um, the game theory has changed within the system quite a bit. So um, 
so yeah i guess I'll, I'll stop there okay no i think that was a really good sort of good length and a good rundown of what it actually is um what kind of problems would you say that this system actually creates i mean you you did touch on bank runs so yeah what are the problems because as far as i'm concerned it's fractional reserve banking that is kind of kind of the big issue um it's it's the centralization but it's it's that piece there where like a bank <laughs> you know you make a deposit and they're only going to retain a few bucks of that hundred dollars you put in and the rest of it gets lent out and they get to gamble and speculate with that money as much as they want to and that has occasionally doesn't happen often but occasionally has catastrophic events uh and you know we, we've seen this play out historically we know it's going to happen again um but do you think you can kind of elaborate a little bit on how fractional reserve banking is in fact a problem? Yeah. So uh, honestly, it's just, I think what's really wrong about it is that people have no idea what they're signing up for because very few people actually understand the system. And people don't like, if you were to go and talk to a venture capital fund or hedge fund or some of these like, you know, risky, complicated type investment funds, and you were to say, Hey, I want to make an investment of a hundred thousand dollars, you know, give me your pitch what are you guys going to do with it? They're going to say, oh, we're going to go take on a ton of risk and, you know, we're going to make these big bets on different things. And, you know, if this pans out this way, we're going to get you some really good returns. And you say, okay, cool. And they're going to be like, okay, but, you know, you might lose all your money. You're going to say, okay, cool, but it could be worth it if I get these really big returns. And um, and you go do that and you give them your money and then maybe you make a lot of money or maybe you lose it all. But you knew up front, when you go put your money in a bank, you're doing the same thing. They're, you're you're investing in a, a bank is just a credit fund. You're giving them your money and then they're taking it, making a bunch of investments, but they're giving you some sort of legal guarantee that you're going to get your money back. And when we have systemic issues throughout history, that's when nobody gets their money back. And that's what resulted in the creation of a central bank because the central bank's like, okay, well, or, you know, the politicians like we can solve this by printing money and it's giving everybody printed money. What does that mean? It just means the loss has been socialized to everybody in society because they cause inflation every time they do it. So like, that's the fundamental issue is like, there's so many downstream problems. Number one, it's not transparent, you know, or, you know, you might hit and accept and sign on the bottom line of a hundred page legal document that tells you all the risks associated with it. But, you know, 98% of people in society have no idea what's actually happening. Um, and if there was any sort of, you know, other industry that was having the same sort of informationally transparent, other than the ones that are protected by government, like, you know, finance and, you know, healthcare and all these things, then consumer protection boards would not allow something like that to occur ever. You know, it'd be like, this is, this is a tragedy, but because we can socialize the losses on everybody and, um, you know, all the, all the wealth inequality that occurs as a downstream effect of that occurs um, and powerful people get more powerful, uh, the system persists over time. Um, so I, I think that like that's that's fundamentally the issue. Now, I think when you get into these arguments of like going back to my point, it's just like I'm I, I believe that we'll see a system emerge without fractional reserve banking and Bitcoin over time. I don't think that'll happen initially. I think that we both can, we've seen fractional reserve happen. We, it's going on today. We'll see it continue. Um, but in a future end state of like, you know, Bitcoin standard, I think that we'll eventually get to that point. Um, but and it doesn't mean that there won't be exceptions to the rule in certain situations. There's always, you know, there's always penny stocks. There's always gambling. There's always things like that going on. There's always fraud. But um, nonetheless, I think that uh, the system is going to be, you know, magnitudes more efficient and, and competitive and informationally transparent than any system we've seen before. Um, 
but I think that uh, nonetheless, I think that like Bitcoiners need to understand that I, I, you need to like understand that I if a fractional reserve system emerges in private markets that are left to their own free will, I prefer that than trying to give any sort of entity control over a financial system to try to prevent fractional reserve. And I think that there's going to be discussions that happen in the industry where we're going to have to have a trade-off around that. And people are going to be debating this pretty frequently um, because they're not going to want it. There's a lot of people against fractional reserve for obvious reasons. But at the end of the day, if it is something that markets choose and for us to say it's not is to go against all of banking history, then... Um, it's uh it it is a challenging argument to make and we need to be aware of that and uh and ultimately I support free markets above all else. Yeah, I hear you, man. Um I, I'm not what can I say? I'm not sure how I feel about it because like I'm used to living in this system that I, at least I'm familiar with, where I know that like here in Canada, there are no reserve requirements. So I have a pretty good idea of what's happening kind of behind the scenes, whereas unfortunately most people don't. You know, the, the scary thing with the way the system's set up now is like in the States, like with the FDIC, um, they're really, the deposits, to my understanding, are really only covering about 1% of all of the money that's actually deposited. The mm -hmm. remaining 99% is like if if you have the JP Morgans of the world have an actual bank run, like people are just going to get wiped out. Yep. So, so I mean, if if we do see it happen in traditional finance or under a Bitcoin standard, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because um, based on the current reserve requirements, like we're just living under this sort of like house of cards that's gonna collapse at any time. So I just wonder if, if it does in fact continue and perpetuate with Bitcoin, maybe it just means that those reserve requirements get you know increased to some degree, whether it's 10% or 15%, what do you think? Uh, yeah, certainly, yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, if we do see, and this is another point that I think I make in the writing that I was referring to earlier. Um, if we were to see a system emerge in Bitcoin for the same reasons that I think it wouldn't ultimately end up in a fractional reserve type system, it would at least have a very uh, much higher threshold of reserves that would be maintained. If it's free, that's that's the million dollar question is... Um, Right now we're building technologies that are going to enable, there's there's this very important property that needs to exist within any software that's utilizing Bitcoin. Um, and it doesn't have to exist in all of it. It has to exist in enough of it. Um, but it's unilateral exit, like the Lightning Network. If you want to exit the Lightning Network and get your Bitcoin on chain, you have the right to forcibly exit. And um, that's something that you don't have in the banking system. That's bank runs. You have to go to the bank and ask for your money back. You can't forcibly take it. Um, and you get, it's like having like, you know, fishing line attached to your cash and at any moment you can like reel it back in if you need to. And um, so that's a really important property. And like right now, a lot of really smart people are working on trying to solve this problem of how do we get that property as well as all of the benefits of having really rapid payments um, and a really strong consumer experience that is actually going to get adoption throughout the world of Bitcoin is money. So like that is, I think those are the hardest problems that are being worked on and solved. And we have, I think we're kind of at this inflection point where we actually have built out a few protocols that are going to make that uh, a, a reality. And, uh, and that's what a lot of my research is going into. Um, but uh, I think that once um, 
that doesn't mean that the entire system needs to exist like that. There will, I'm sure there will still, at least for a very long time, still be centralized type institutions. What matters more is that the, there's much more information transparency where people know what they're getting into and what these institutions are doing and proof of reserves type uh, systems that are evolving. Oh, they've evolved pretty drastically over the past year. Um, those are going to be really valuable in that kind of a system too, in the centralized type system or custodial system. Um, and that system just needs to be very competitive and inf informationally transparent. And if that exists, then we can see in some, some aspects of free banking throughout history can support this notion that that's going to serve the consumer and you're not going to see a lot of systemic risk or bank runs. Um, usually if anything bad ever happens, it just means that, you know, one of the banks is going to buy that failing bank out or something. Um, and uh, and we'll see that as well. So the point is, is that enough of like the peer-to-peer self-sovereign market, the, all the people that possess, are using technology that allows them to unilaterally exit the system, that needs to be a large enough proportion to act as a deterrence mechanism against the centralized system ever trying to, you know, go fiat or go very fractional reserve on them. And that that's a very new phenomenon, right? Never in history have we really had that ability. Like today, nobody can say, oh, I'm just going to pull my money out of the banking system and operate in cash. Um, it's just like literally not practical unless you've set up a structure like a cartel to be able to do things like that. Um, so outside of that, it's uh, it just pe people can't live like that. They're basically forced into the system. Whereas in Bitcoin, as long as people are like, you know what, I'm going to start operating, I'm going to do the work, I'm going to become self-sovereign, I'm going to start operating the systems. Yeah, I might add a little bit extra headache, or I might have to take on a little bit extra personal liability or responsibility. Um but I prefer that over trusting some of these assholes. And what does that mean? These assholes are going to stop being assholes and they're actually going to be a consumer focused type business that's trying to attract business. So that's a very new dynamic that's never existed in a financial system before. And as long as that exists, I think it's going to make centralized type people much more competitive over time. Very cool. Yeah. It's that like transparency piece within the blockchain that I think holds people accountable. And that's what's going to sort of allow change to occur because you know i mean I, I don't know how to assess what's happening on the uh, bitcoin blockchain like i don't i don't have these sort of hard skills to do that but there's lots of people out there that, that can be able to you know do the work to verify transactions um i i just see that as i mean one of one of the many things that will sort of transform this industry listen i know i know we're running out of time um i definitely want to continue this conversation another day because I, I do have some some more like pretty strong questions that I want to ask you, but um, for people out there, where can they find you? Where can they learn more about you? Yeah, just uh, check me out on Twitter. That's where I spend pretty much all my time. I have a blog and uh, just general website linked there. I haven't updated in a while, um, but you can, if you go there, you can kind of like hop on my newsletter list. I write pretty infrequently whenever I have like a big release, it'll, you know, you might get a ping by me once or twice a year. Um, so there's, there's that too. But yeah. Twitter's the best place. All right. Awesome. Well, I hope I can meet you in person at a conference. I know we, we talked beforehand that you, you seem to do the circuit quite often. So if I don't see you there. Maybe I'll see you in Canada again. Who knows? Yeah, totally, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, man. Take care.